Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Ren Vieth, and I'm a host on the Human Rights Channel. Today, we have Frederick Schauer here to discuss his new book, The Proof, Uses of Evidence in Law, Politics, and Everything Else. Frederick Schauer is a David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Thanks for coming on the show, Fred. I'm delighted to be here, uh, delighted to talk about the book, and uh, grateful that you're giving me the opportunity. So to start, I'm I'm curious how you came to write this book in the first place. Um, what brought you to this project? Sure. Um, so there's a sort of long term and short term. What brought me to this project? The long term is that a long time ago, uh, before my about 45 years as an academic, I was a trial lawyer. Uh, so I dealt with um, evidence on a daily basis. Uh, evidence is something that was a big part of my professional life when I was, a, let's call it, real lawyer. Uh, but I, I've been an academic for um, 40 plus years, but because I started as a trial lawyer um, for at least much of that 40 plus years, I have been teaching the law of evidence to law students. Uh, I also teach constitutional law um, with a subspecialty of free speech and free press. Um, But evidence has been one of the things that I have been teaching uh, and writing about for a long time. Uh, So short term, uh, in addition to my more abstruse work about evidence and evidence theory and so on, uh, short term, I was inspired, uh, I'm not sure that's the right word, but inspired by some of the rhetoric that surrounded um, the last presidential election uh, in the U.S. Um, And a lot of that rhetoric was about evidence and a lot of the counter rhetoric uh, appropriately uh, was about evidence. That is, people, um, when uh, Trump and others were claiming that there was election fraud, uh, some number of political figures uh, and commentators, uh, including political figures from his own party, uh, were saying things like, where is the evidence? Uh, and It was interesting the extent to which a demand for evidence and a demand for proof uh, became part of the rhetoric in ways that it uh, is not always uh, the case. Um, And then this was um, reinforced uh, on January the 6th, 2021, um, where there were big disputes uh, about who said what to whom and when did they say it and why did they say it. Uh, That's all about evidence. So that uh, led me to want to do something more systematic about evidence, combined with the extent to which evidentiary issues were front and center as people debated about vaccines uh, and the effectiveness of vaccines. Um, so uh, it was not just alleged election fraud. It was not just the uh, riots at the Capitol, but issues like vaccination uh, and so on were all about evidence. Um, and that led me to think that there were so many evidentiary issues that um, were worth trying to uh, somewhat loosely bring together in a book. In a book. So that's the background, uh, and that's the book. So um, I don't usually ask um, this particular question, but I'm curious about your envisioned audience for this book. Um, part of why I'm asking this is, is the the question of of who the audience might be for this um, is because I've I've read um, 
a number of of law books, and I found yours um, incredibly accessible, which I, I mean as a very high compliment. And also, um, unfortunately, as you just nodded to, very um, I don't know, very appropriate um, to the current moment. Um, so yeah, I would I would be curious to who to to hear who your envisioned audience is. So I think the audience is what I would want to think of as the educated and intellectually interested layperson, uh, not lawyers, uh, not very much lawyers, a little bit. Um, uh, philosophers who think about uh, philosophy of science and related uh, evidentiary issues, a little bit um, academics in various non-law, non-philosophy disciplines uh, who think about evidence as they think about history, as they think about facts and so on. But mostly um, it is the educated and intellectually interested public. Uh, so uh, that's the audience. Uh, it's not um, uh, in the audience that sort of, I don't know how to describe this, uh, reads uh, the, the most serious newspapers, um, or the ones that uh, the most serious news magazines or access the most serious forms of general news and general commentary. Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, it's it's not for lawyers. Um, yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> in, in reading I mean, that, I, I noticed it was... <sighs> I don't know. There was a lot of a lot of contextualization, a lot of history. There's a lot of philosophy, a lot of different things really woven throughout. Yeah. And it's um, I think part of the motivation for the book uh, is that despite what you just said, uh, which I agree with, <laughs> um, I think it's also the case that although people make fun of the rules of evidence, and people make fun of lawyers when they are engaged in litigation. Uh, the law of evidence and the rules of evidence have a fair amount to teach other people when they think about evidence. So uh, sometimes what the law does does not carry over, but sometimes it does. Uh, and at least, uh, as you read, um, some of this book is about what can the law um, teach the rest of us as we um, think about evidence? So, uh, yes, it's appropriate to make fun of the law. It's appropriate to make fun of the rules of evidence. Uh, but there's a little bit of a there there. Uh, and I think other disciplines and people can learn from it. So to, to shift um, perhaps a little bit away from the law just for a moment. Um, a really interesting thread that I enjoyed in, in the proof that you're thinking through is, is that you, you make it clear that, um, that we're facing different questions um, around evidence. So there's the question of what evidence is as a particular category, what it means, and all of that. But also there's this question of what we should do with it. Um, and I would I would love to hear you speak a little bit to this because I I just I appreciated how how clear that was when you were laying everything out. Sure. Um, so uh, it's a nice question. Uh, you put it better than I put it in the book, um, but um, I think uh, one way of thinking about this, uh, which again draws a little bit on the law, uh, is what do we count as evidence in the first place? So the reason that I say it draws a little bit on the law um, is that in the um, typical trial, uh, uh, at least in the typical trial in the common law system. Uh, so I realize that uh, this is an odd way to put it, given that I am speaking to someone uh, who is speaking from a uh, from the uh, from a civil law jurisdiction, uh, but in the typical common law trial um, involving a jury, um, there are two very important steps. 
one step is uh, what counts as admissible or usable evidence in the first place. The judge has to decide, uh, is this something that um, we're going to take into account? And then once the jury has, once the judge has decided what counts, uh, then the trier of fact, typically the jury uh, in a common law system, has to decide what to do with it. Uh, those two steps occur in almost every use of evidence. Uh, what's the evidence out there? And then what's, um, what does the evidence add up to? Uh, how do we make a decision on the basis of that evidence? And at least one of the running themes of the book um, is that, first of all, all evidence is probabilistic. Um, we should not think of something as certain or non, not. Uh, evidence is probabilistic. And even more importantly, um, what we are going to do with the evidence is very much a function of um, uh, what turns on it. Uh, what are the stakes? What are the consequences? So um, the um, it is common to think, uh, if we think in terms of the criminal law, uh, or even the televised version of the criminal law, which may not bear, bear very much relationship to what actually goes on. But one of the things that's true about the criminal law is that we don't put people in prison unless there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Not quite absolute, no, no doubt about it, certainty, but pretty close. But for lots of other things, um, we don't have that much evidence and we don't want that much evidence and we don't need that much evidence. So uh, a somewhat um, vivid example I use um, is um, suppose you hear from a couple of different uh, slightly reliable but not absolutely certain sources that the person that you have hired as a babysitter um, has issues with child molestation. There's no absolute proof. There's no proof beyond the reasonable doubt. Um, but you have a responsibility to a child. Under those circumstances, I would suspect that most people, I won't talk to myself since I have no children, uh, but most people um, would say that strong suspicion or some evidence or good evidence, even if it is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, is going to be sufficient to say, no, I'd rather have someone else as a babysitter. I'd rather have someone else... Uh, involved in child care. Uh, uh, it's a somewhat offensive, but maybe vivid example um, of the fact that how much evidence we want is very much a function of what turns on it. And that, as I said, relates to the fact that all evidence is probabilistic. Um, and one consequence of all evidence being probabilistic is that for some purposes, what we might think of as weak evidence or insufficient evidence might still be sufficient for some particular purpose. So um, that's a, your, your response there is, is a wonderful segue to, to my next question. Um, so um, my research field sites, um, one of them is the asylum tribunals in the UK, where certainty over asylum applications and evidence is a major topic. And so I really, really appreciated that you gave so much time to thinking about certainty and evidence. Um, and so you, you did already, you know, allude to a bit, you know, this idea of, of reasonable doubt. Um, but I also appreciated that you, um, that you flagged that it can be really difficult to think about these things, um, or perhaps impossible in terms of numerical probability. Um, so I would, I would be curious to hear a little bit more about how, um, I, yeah, I guess how, how doubt, uh, fits into evidence. Right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, although the, the law uses the phrase reasonable doubt, uh, in some sense, uh, there's always doubt. Uh, 
Uh, we're never absolutely sure. There's always doubt. Uh, so um, to take the example of what you are researching about and what you are writing about, uh, I don't know very much about asylum law, but I read the newspapers. Uh, so one way of thinking about an asylum application um, is, uh, should we grant this person asylum? Uh who says that uh, if they are required to go back to where they have most recently been, they will be subject to torture, their family will be subject to torture, all sorts of horrible things will happen. Under those circumstances, um, my instinct, uh, obviously uh, guided or influenced by my own moral views, my own politics uh, or whatever, uh, is that if you are in a relatively safe, developed country um, and someone from uh, a country in the midst of great turmoil um, uh, is an applicant for asylum, uh, I would want something less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt um, of the likely consequences should their application be denied. Uh, So to put it in numbers, sometimes it's useful to put it in rough numbers, even if we can't nail it down. Um, If there is a 80% chance that um, denying an asylum application will subject this person to and this person's family um, to um, uh, inconceivable torture. Eighty percent would be good enough for me. Uh, I don't know what the UK does. Uh, I don't know what Canada does. Actually, I'm not even sure in terms of percentages what the US does. Um, but if it were my decision, eighty percent would be good enough for me, uh, given that the consequences uh, are serious torture or worse uh, for the person for whom we uh, deny an application. Uh, so uh, it's a good example. It's a good example of the way in which uh, these issues um, come up all the time and a good example of the fact that in almost every area in which we are concerned about facts, uh, the real issue is what are the consequences if, if some claim about facts are true? What are the consequences if some claim about facts are false? So to continue with the same example that you just gave me, um, suppose you get it wrong. Um, uh, or suppose the asylum board or whoever makes the decision gets it wrong. Um, If the asylum board gets it wrong, uh, the worst thing that happens is that uh, somebody um, from an impoverished country uh, gets to live in a uh, comparatively wealthy country of 60 million people. Uh, That's not the worst thing in the world. That's a lot worse um, than somebody being tortured. So even if the asylum board um, is making its decision uh, on the basis of 80% probability, if they get it wrong, that's okay. Uh, And indeed, um, that's the idea that William Blackstone uh, was talking about um, 200 and some years ago um, when he said, um, it is better that 10... um, guilty people go free than that one innocent person be punished. Uh, And this kind of, let's call it a calculus in the loosest sense, this kind of calculus comes up in almost every evidentiary determination. Uh, So if you'll let me give another example from another part of the book, um, one of the things I talk about in the book, because it's an interest of mine, is art authentication. Uh, So um, uh, when I say art authentication, I am not talking about art evaluation. I am not talking about whether uh, Picasso was a better painter uh, than Monet and whether Monet was a more important artist than Rembrandt. Um, (coughs) I am talking instead (coughs) about the enormously important field uh, of 
is a, a work of art, especially a work of art by a non-living artist, um, what it purports to be. Um, so there have been lots of recent disputes uh, about whether something um, allegedly a Vermeer or allegedly a Leonardo uh actually was painted by Vermeer or actually was painted um, by Leonardo. Um, and making these determinations uh, invariably are evidentiary determinations and invariably, uh, again, involve the question um, of um, uh, what turns on it. So suppose uh, in a counterfactual world um, that you have uh, a Leonardo on your wall. Um, and uh, uh, you're not quite sure whether it's a real Leonardo, but you think it is. Um, and you engage in some effort uh, to determine whether it is or not. And the ultimate conclusion is it probably is, but you can't be sure. My guess is that you would keep it on the wall. Because if it turns out that ultimately uh, it's not a real Leonardo, uh, to put it somewhat bluntly, so what? Now let's change the facts a little bit. Let's say that you are Sotheby's or Christie's auction house. And there's a question whether the work of art that you are selling um, as a Leonardo or a Botticelli or a Vermeer uh, or whatever uh, is challenged. And someone says uh, it's not a real one. Now, if you're um, the chief authenticator at Christie's, um, you want to be absolutely sure because the consequences to Christie's of selling as a Leonardo something that's not a real Leonardo is much greater than the consequences to you of having something on your wall that you and your friends think is a Leonardo, but that is actually not. So once again, what turns on it? Um, so, um, the art authentication disputes uh, are, um, for me, uh, fascinating. Sometimes they are amusing. Um, there's actually uh, the one about Vermeer that I talk about in the book um, was the subject of a book uh, and a movie. Um, uh, it's a, uh, an amusing example. Um, this art forger named Han van Mergeren, uh, who was Dutch, um, painted some number of Vermeers in the 1930s. Um, he convinced some um, number of experts, some number of museums, and some number of collectors, including the most famous collector of the time, uh, uh, Hermann Goering, uh, that... Um, I'm not sure collector is the right word for Goering, uh, 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 but acquirer, uh, let us say, um, convinced some number of these people that the Vermeers that he painted, including some that had not yet been discovered, allegedly, um, were real Vermeers. Um, uh, so um, the... Uh, and some number of them were sold, some number of them were um, in museums. Um, fa fast forward seven or eight years, World War uh, II ends, uh, and uh, von Megeren, um is uh, charged with the crime of treason uh, because he had uh, allegedly sold his uh, or sold part of the Dutch provenance, uh, Dutch artistic history um, to Goering uh, and others. Uh, here's the amusing part, at least to me. Um, his defense was, uh, you can't charge me as a traitor because I am not a traitor. I am a forger. Uh, that is, uh, I didn't sell a real Vermeer, uh, cause it's not a real Vermeer. I painted it and I can prove it to you. And he in fact proved it to you by, uh, off the cuff 
painting a little bit of a Vermeer uh, in front of the judges who were making this decision. So he was ultimately convicted as a forger, but not as a traitor. Um, the, the penalty was much less. Uh, he actually didn't serve very much of it because he died, but that's um, a backstory. Uh, but these um, issues come up all the time in art authentication. They come up all the time um, in history. Um, a very big dispute in the U.S., um, now mostly resolved, um, is um, was Thomas Jefferson the father uh, of the children of an enslaved person in his household named Sally Hemings? Um, and Lots of people um, invested a lot of time and money and psychological energy on both sides of this issue. Um, the uh, current expert consensus um, is that, yes, he was, uh, but uh, a lot of people got angry on both sides of this. Uh, once again, um, Sally Hemings is dead. Thomas Jefferson is dead. Uh, and making this determination, as with most historical determinations, involves in evaluating competing bits of non-certain evidence. Thank you so much for for all of that. And um, as a as a note, in terms of asylum um, determinations in the UK, it's supposed to just be likely. It's supposed to be much lower, right, than than reasonable doubt. But that's a I don't know story <laughs> story for another time. Um, throughout the book, um, and also when we when we began, you you made um, allusions to contemporary things like the. Um, Trump allegations of election fraud, which is an accusation that has no evidence behind it, as you note multiple times, right? And right. I was really struck by Not your enough. statement. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was struck by your statement in the preface that um, all too frequently, for example, commentators on a variety of issues conflate the lack of evidence with falsity, taking the absence of evidence as being equivalent to evidence that the statement is false. And so, I would love to hear you speak a bit to what. Um, what a lack of evidence actually signifies, because I, I haven't seen that um, emphasized as, as clearly as it was uh, in your in your book. Right. So the way I put it in the book is um, we should not confuse the absence of evidence with evidence of absence. Um, that is the fact that we don't know something doesn't mean that we know that it's not true. Um, so, um, and therefore we ought to be very careful to distinguish uncertainty. We just have no evidence from certainty that something that is claimed is just not true. So, uh, I'll use the example, uh, from the book that you talk about. Uh, so, um, uh, Trump claims that there was lots of election fraud, um, uh, for the first couple days that he made that claim, there was no evidence, and we, therefore we just didn't know. After some uh, days and weeks and months of investigation, we came to the conclusion, or most thoughtful people uh, came to the conclusion, there was no fraud. That is, it wasn't just that there was no evidence, um, but the claims of, of fraud uh, were false. Uh, there was actually no fraud. Uh, and in numerous different areas, it is important to distinguish uh, what we don't know from what we know to be false. Uh, that's what I mean when I say um, that there is a difference between the absence of evidence and evidence of absence. And one related area in which this comes up all the time, it's one of my pet peeves that comes up all the time in the book, uh, is what I call in the book the tyranny of adjectives. That is, um, the um, often we, uh, especially in political and public debate, people would say, will say there's no direct evidence of something. 
There's no conclusive evidence for something. There's no concrete evidence for something. Uh, if you hear that, all of a sudden the signal flags uh, or warning flags ought to go up. When somebody says there's no concrete evidence of X, what they're really saying is there's some evidence of X. Uh, there's no conclusive evidence of X. They're saying there's some evidence of X. Um, and the reason I call it the tyranny of adjectives is that the person who is um, saying, well, there's no concrete evidence of something, just like to give, give an example, um, in the 1950s and 1960s, the tobacco companies were fond of saying, there's no conclusive evidence that cigarette smoking is harmful. Um, and um, in that context, um, what they really are doing is building in a very high burden of proof for which uh, there may be no justification. They are trying to uh, seduce you into thinking that there is uh, no evidence for something, even though there is some evidence for something. So whenever you see the no concrete evidence, no direct evidence, no conclusive evidence, um, uh, you ought to be on your guard, just like you ought to be on your guard um, when um, people say in uh, various public statements, uh, the evidence is only circumstantial. Uh, complaining about circumstantial evidence is a favorite tactic of, let us say, lawyers for guilty defendants. Um, and um, uh, almost all evidence in one form or another is circumstantial. And almost all non-circumstantial evidence is not as good as we often think it is. Um, uh, we know from a lot of recent events and a lot of recent um, uh, psychological and criminological studies that so-called eyewitness testi testimony can often be mistaken, um, that what we see is not always what actually happened. Uh, so thinking that circumstantial evidence is suspect for that reason is a mistake. Thinking that non-circumstantial evidence uh, is absolutely certain is also a mistake. So um, building on, on your wonderful response to that, to that question, um, something else that I really appreciated in in terms of, of engaging with with certain kinds of uncertainties around evidence, um, your points about skepticism, uh, in particular, how skepticism can can go beyond what's reasonable, and I'm I'm thinking in particular about skepticism as a of a particular kind of of evidence as um, I don't know as as verifiable as as reliable as usable, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I would be curious to hear you speak a little bit to. Um, I guess what I would call maybe reactionary skepticism to certain kinds of, of evidence. Okay, right. So it's, um, so uh, I think this relates to a little bit what we were talking about a few minutes ago um, about uncertain evidence. I think there is a tendency, um, and maybe it's more common uh, in uh, some fields than others to take the uh, absence of certainty or the absence of verification uh, as indicating that there is no truth to be had, there is no truth to be discovered, um, there is no there there. Um, so uh, I am not, uh, to use a um, fancy term, I am not an epistemological skeptic. Uh, I believe that there is truth and falsity in the world. I believe that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Um, I believe that most of us believe that. Um, and the kind of skepticism we may see in some corners um, of uh, some academic disciplines uh, that there's no truth, uh, there's no knowledge, there are no facts, uh, is not something that I am comfortable with. Now, that said, uh, 
I am comfortable with recognizing that it is appropriate to be skeptical at times about how we know what we know. Um, and we ought not to confuse the fact that we may not be certain about what we know um, from the fact that there's no truth um, and there's no knowledge. Um, and um, being careful and thoughtful about evidence may help us appro- um, approach truth, may help us approach knowledge, uh, even if we can never be uh, absolutely certain. And thinking that because we are ab- not absolutely certain uh, means that we don't have any knowledge or that there is no truth um, is uh, a mistake. Uh, and uh, I want to guard against that. So uh, to put it in, I'm not a global skeptic. <laughs> I'm not a global skeptic, and the book is not a globally skeptic book. I am. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking um, about uh, some of the the points you you ha- you raise throughout the book in terms of right, like this this very basic question of you know what do we do with evidence? What can evidence tell us? What's the context? All of all of these really big questions. And in a few places, you highlight this thread of um, assumption that that we all have um, that draws upon past action, past evidence, um, and makes that link to future action. Um, and so this, is, this isn't asking, you know, how evidence can predict the future. Um, but what, what do you see as the limits on evidence, including things like federal judicial limits, as you, as you highlight, um, from the past as, as proof of the future. Right. Good. Um, so this may be the main area in which what the law does is appropriate for the law, but it does not and should not carry over to our everyday evidentiary determinations. Um, so the law, um, at least the common law, uh, the law in its, uh, let's uh, say, uh, Anglo-American judicial context, uh, tends to be very skeptical of what it calls character evidence and very skeptical about the ability to use past acts as proof that someone did or did not do something now. Um, So, um, If you are charged um, with a crime, say you are charged with bank robbery, and say you have been convicted three times in the past of being a bank robber, uh, in the U.S. and in most other common law systems, the jury will never find out about your past bank robberies. In ordinary determination, that's nuts, to use the appropriate technical term. Um, But it's entire... um, in uh, We make these determinations all the time. Um, We predict the future, and we also make decisions under circumstances of uncertainty based on what we know about the past uh, and the relevance of the past to the future. Uh, It's all entirely rational. Um, If to use an example I use in the book, um, uh, if you have an acquaintance who on four occasions um, has been convicted of uh, reckless driving, uh, and at the end of some party or event, this person says to you, do you want to ride? Uh, uh, I hope that you're going to think twice about uh, saying, sure, I'd be happy to have you give me a ride. That's entirely rational. Uh, The law excludes all of this, for a reason, for a bunch of reasons that are at least rational for the law. One of them um, is that the law is worried um, that although this is valuable evidence in terms of 
predicting the future or making decisions under uncertainty right now. The law is worried that people or juries will overvalue it. They'll take it as conclusive, even though it might be good but not conclusive evidence. So the law, for lots of good reasons, that goes back a little bit to Blackstone um, and all of this, the law says um, it is better to um, undervalue this evidence than overvalue it. We are worried that juries are going to overvalue it. We are worried that juries are going to take what is good evidence as conclusive. So in order to guard against overvaluation, we command that the juries undervalue it by not letting them hear about it in the first place. In addition, um, the law, for good moral reasons, um, believes that um, people ought to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, and the law, for good moral reasons, believes that uh, people ought to be given, um, let's call it, second chances. Um, You know, we all... um, We've all seen these bad movies where someone is uh, convicted of some crime. Uh, They serve time in the penitentiary. They are then released uh, and nobody gives him a job. Uh, And he complains, nobody gives me a job. I've already paid my debt to society. Uh, I want someone to give me a second chance uh, or give me a new chance. The law, for lots of good reasons, um, uh, thinks that this is an admirable goal, that you pay your penalty, uh, you serve your sentence, or whatever the penalty is, uh, and then you ought to be entitled to start over again. That may not be the wisest thing to do in everyday decision-making about um, who to take a ride from um, or which merchant to trust uh, and so on, um, uh, or uh, to take um, a particularly um, vivid example from the recent news. Uh, Are you going to Um, buy securities from the people who have been involved in the most recent um, events uh, regarding crypto sales. Now, I'm not even sure what a crypto is. Uh, The only thing I'm sure about is I don't have any. Uh, But um, uh, are you going to buy securities from the people who've involved, who've been involved in all of this? And I think many of us, including myself, would say no. Um, Entirely rational decision based on past acts or even based on past accusations. But there are good reasons why the law would not um, want to do this uh, and good reasons why we, why many of us in many contexts um, would not want to do what the law does, just as there are good reasons for the law doing what the law does. So the the last question that I have uh, for you about your, your book, um, you use climate change as an example in a number of places uh, throughout the proof in terms of an example that something um, we, we have information from scientists, we have evidence from scientists, but it, we don't necessarily know how to get to that um, that ideal cutback on fossil fuels. And also thinking in terms of something that has been framed as politics, thinking of the Coney Barrett questioning that you you nod to, um, as long as, as well as thinking about um, about an idea of, of uh, expert consensus. And I, I know that climate change is front of mind for many. Perhaps this is in part because I'm I'm in Montreal, which was the site of, of COP15, COP15. Um, so I would love to hear how you see climate change as an example of, of all of these big questions of evidence being tied together, because that seemed, I don't know, really clear to me. And I, I appreciated this, um, this thread throughout. Yeah, uh, good. Okay, so I mean, one of the interesting things about climate change um, is that um, for those of us who believe it is real, uh, um, we don't actually know why we believe it's real other than we rely on the experts. 
especially maybe over the last couple of years, we've seen examples uh, of it. Um, but the mechanisms of climate change um, involve scientific expertise that's totally beyond um, my comprehension. I rely on experts. Um, and then there's... Um, but then there's the problem of uh, how do non-experts um, know who the experts are and who they're not? Uh, some of that is based on credentials. Uh, I rely on the fact that people win Nobel Prizes uh, uh, or things of that sort, uh, or they have fancy university positions uh, in scientific disciplines. But all of this is indirect. And I think in many scientific areas, um, uh, uh, it's essential that we rely on experts, but it becomes increasingly essential that we think carefully about who the experts are and how we know who the experts are, especially in an area in which everybody is an expert um, about something. Uh, so one of the things I mention in the book, in the chapter on expertise, uh, is that there are people these days who claim to be lifestyle experts. I don't know what a lifestyle expert is. Um, uh, 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 I'm not sure the people who claim to be lifestyle experts know what a lifestyle expert is. But there are experts in cl uh, climate change, in physics, in meteorology, um, uh, in chemistry, and so on. I rely on them Um uh, I hope justifiably, but what I'm doing when I rely on them uh, is aggregating different credentials from different areas um, and relying on various different credentialing organizations or institutions or whatever. Now, one of the things that happens in this particular debate um, is what I end the book uh, with, and a couple of people, uh, more than a couple, have accused me of ending this book uh, in a, on a depressing note. Uh, the last chapter of the book, which draws pretty heavily on some um, modern cognitive and social psychology, uh, is about motivated reasoning. So motivated reasoning um, is the phenomenon um, uh, well-researched by cognitive and social psychologists by which, uh, according to which people often make factual determinations about which there are factual answers based on their uh, normative, moral, and political preferences. Um, uh, and um, the phenomenon is familiar to all of us who are sports fans. Uh, uh, did the uh, ball go over the line or not? Uh, we all know that um, depending on uh, which team you root for uh, will be a uh, determinant of whether you think the ball went over the line or not, uh, even though there's an entire, in, there is entirely a factual matter. Uh, uh, if I am a fan of um, one, um, uh, I should say, in deference to where you're located, let's say the puck go over the line uh, or not. Uh, uh, if you are a um, fan of uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, um, uh, and the question is whether uh, the Canadian uh, scored or not, um, uh, you have an interest in the in the puck not having gone over the line, uh, and you really believe that it didn't go over the line, uh, just as Canadians fans um, will think that it really did. Uh, that's motivated reasoning. Uh, and uh, I say this with some trepidation, although there are things in the world that are more important than hockey, um, uh, um, like climate change, for example, um, uh, the same phenomenon exists uh, throughout 
uh, all of this. We saw, we see this uh, in the U.S. Uh, we saw this in the U.S. about how people um, evaluated the events of January the sixth, two thousand and twenty-one. Um, that uh, overwhelmingly, uh, people on one side of the political divide um, made entirely factual statements or reached entirely factual conclusions based on their political preferences, um, uh, even though there was a fact of the matter. Uh, uh, this happens so often. This is such a pervasive phenomenon um, that um, it casts doubt on our ability to let us say, objectively evaluate evidence. Uh, and that's why I end the book on this somewhat depressing note. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, at least for me, I, I don't think it ends on a depressing note. I, I really enjoyed okay. reading it. I found it incredibly engaging. Um, and so thank you so much for speaking with me about the proof. Um, before we close for today, would you like to let listeners know about other projects that you might be working on? So um, uh, I'm I remain interested in um, evidence generally um, and want to do more. And I'm thinking uh, about doing a little bit more on, um, and it relates to the climate change issue, uh, evidence in public policy. Uh, rather than just evidence about what happened or what didn't, um, evident, like whether it be climate change or the harmfulness um, of uh, various substances, uh, I'm interested in all of that. But I'm also, I also work in my legal theorist um, domain. Um, uh, I am working on and continue to work on uh, questions of legal sources, uh, but also, uh, and it relates a little bit more to evidence, uh, as someone who thinks occasionally skeptically or more than occasionally skeptically about freedom of expression. Um, I am interested in um, the question uh, and work on it and write about it. Does debate and freedom of expression incline towards truth? Um, uh, uh, John Milton, 300 and some years ago, uh, said, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a fair fight with falsehood. I'm not sure Milton was right. Uh, and I continue <laughs> to think about the extent to which um, letting everybody say whatever they want inclines towards truth or inclines towards knowledge. So that's about evidence, too, when it relates to what um, this book is all about. So thank you very much. This has been lots of fun. I hope people read the book. Uh, uh, I hope they engage with it. I hope they disagree with it. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you. <laughs>